You've already heard Tim say that we're starting in on this uh, season of prayer and scripture reading, so I thought it might be a good idea this morning just to talk a little bit about why pray. Is prayer something meaningless or ritualistic, a spiritual exercise that, um, well, simply makes us feel better in a crisis for doing something? Or is prayer a real force that makes a genuine difference in life? After all, sometimes our prayers seem to fall on deaf ears, and sometimes our prayers seem to be answered in just the opposite way as to what we ask. Does, does God really care if we pray? And if we do, does he care about the prayers? Does he, does he really answer? Why pray? Well, the, the scriptures certainly would suggest, and the practice of God's people down through the ages would certainly suggest that for the Christian, prayer is, is really not an option. Now, can I prove that it works or that it doesn't work? I can't. As a matter of fact, prayer seems pretty meaningless apart from three basic assumptions. Number one, that God exists. Number two, that God is capable of hearing our prayers. And number three, that God cares enough to give us an answer to those prayers. If we, if we don't believe those things, why bother to pray? Now, I will tell you that I, I believe those statements are true, but I can't prove that scientifically. By the same token, I cannot prove scientifically that love exists, and yet I know it to be one of the greatest forces at work in my own life. So, when we pray, it is a step of faith. So, I'll ask again, why pray? Because prayer is chief among the disciplines, and if we desire to be genuine followers of Jesus Christ, we must discipline ourselves to participate in prayer. Why pray? Because we need more of it as a congregation. I, I, I love this church and our times together on Sunday morning, but if what happens here in a worship service on a Sunday morning is the sum total of our congregational prayer life, then we're in a world of hurt, let me tell you. Why pray? Because I need it. My prayer life is never what it should be. Perhaps you have the mistaken idea that because I'm a preacher, that I have some kind of an edge over you when it comes to spiritual disciplines and prayer. I do not. I have the same distractions and temptations in my walk with God that you do. I carry the same guilt when I fail to live up to God's expectations just the same as you do. I need to pray more. Maybe you don't, but I do. Now, in these next few minutes that we spend together, please don't, don't think that I'm going to be able to answer all your questions concerning prayer. But then if I could answer all the questions concerning prayer in the next 25 minutes, prayer wouldn't be much of a deal, would it? I do not pretend to be a scholar who can discern or explain the depths of prayer. I do, however, want us to become practitioners of prayer. So, before I go any farther, I think it'd be a good idea to pray. What do you think? Let's do it. Oh, Father, you have been so good to us in this past year, and you have given us the privilege of seeing the new year come with all of its challenges and hopes and dreams. We are overwhelmed, Lord, when we stop to consider the fact that you, the God of the universe, would invite us to pray, that you would listen, that you would answer. 
So Lord, help us this year not to take prayer for granted or to make it a last resort. Help us to make it our priority, our lifeline to you. Father, bless this congregation and her outreach into this community. And Lord, please take the words of this sermon so that it might glorify you and help us to become better people of prayer. Thank you for Jesus, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. Why pray? Because I think it changes our lives. And I think it begins with what we believe about God. David wrote in Psalm chapter 8, verse 3 and following, says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Indeed, who are we that God should take notice of us? One of our human weaknesses is that we assign those same weaknesses to God, or at least we try. Now, for just a moment, I want you to picture God in heaven. Focus on just what do you see in your mind when you think of God in heaven? Do you see an enormous golden throne? Do you see an image sitting on that throne that is at least vaguely human in its appearance? Is he wearing white robes with a long white beard and seemingly considerably old? I mean... Cartoonists have been doing that for a long time. We see these pictures in, the, in, in uh, <laughs> magazines and the newspapers. And when God is pictured, it's always this old, weathered kind of person, sporting long hair and a beard, a flowing robe, and being slightly out of touch with the world around him. I think we gravitate toward that picture. And the reason we do is because that's our story. Daniel refers to him as the ancient of days, but that doesn't suggest that God is borderline senile. We think of our lives growing that way, and so we want to assign those same qualities to him. You see, we become cantankerous with age. Our memories weaken. We lose our sharpness, and we seem to be slightly out of touch. And because that's our pattern... Why, surely it must be God's. One of my favorite stories is about the, the four couples that all graduated from high school together in the same year. And when they were turning 40 years of age, they, they got their heads together and they decided they really wanted to kind of have, have their own reunion, just the eight of them. And so they decided they were going to meet at the Ocean View restaurant uh, and have a dinner because, well, in their estimation, the Ocean View restaurant had the best dance band in the whole community. So they got together on their 40th birthdays, uh, celebrated, uh, and they had a wonderful time. So much so that they decided every decade they were going to do this again. So when they turned 50, they got their heads together again, decided they were going to meet at the Ocean View restaurant because the food there was just absolutely outstanding. And they had a wonderful evening. 60 rolls around and they decide they're going to meet at the Ocean View restaurant for their 60th birthday celebration because it was quiet and they had such a beautiful view over the Atlantic Ocean. 70 rolls around and they decide they're going to get together at the Ocean View restaurant to celebrate 70 because it's handicap accessible. <laughs> and when they rolled around to their 80th birthdays, they decided they would meet one last time and they debated for a while and then they finally landed on the fact that they were going to meet at the Ocean View restaurant because they'd never been there before. <laughs> now, that's our story, isn't it? I mean, that, that's what happens to us. 
We want to apply that to God, but it's not true. God is not old. He's everlasting, but he isn't old. From age to age, he's the same, but that doesn't make him ancient. That makes him ageless. He created time and space for us, but he doesn't and is not bound by time and space. God is not old, nor is God old-fashioned. If Jesus had come in the 21st century instead of the first, we would not, he would not be wearing tunics, nor would he insist on riding a donkey instead of in air-conditioning buses and cars. He would not limit his teaching to the grassy hillsides. Now, I really believe that Jesus would employ every possible means of technology to communicate the grace, forgiveness, and love of God to the world that so desperately needs to hear it. You see, unlike our Amish friends, God is not locked into a particular time period of history as the purest period. And unlike the sectarian groups that believe God is exclusive to one race or culture, God is not limited to a particular earthly locality, ethnic group, or language. God is not old-fashioned in his thinking. God is not forgetful. God does not suffer with dementia. He does not forget who you are or confuse you with someone else. Even when we forget him, he does not forget us. God is not tired and angry. Sometimes we picture God as sitting on the edge of his throne, mad as an old wet hen, just waiting for someone to do something wrong so he can stomp them flat. And so we pray in an effort to stave off the wrath of God. If I can just say the right words, or if I can express enough humility to soften God's heart, or if I can use just enough flowery language, then maybe, just maybe, he won't crush the life out of me. But God isn't angry or tired. And God is not easily distracted. I've learned this over the last year and a half, that my hearing aid does not solve all my hearing problems. This is what I've learned. A hearing aid magnifies... It does not clarify. So when I'm out in, in a noisy place, all the noise is magnified, and I still struggle to hear clearly. When I think of the cacophony of prayers that go up before God every second of every day, I cannot begin to understand how God can sort all that out because I cannot fathom the greatness in the mind of God. But I know this. That when I pray, I feel like I have God's complete attention. I don't always get the answers that I want. Sometimes, sometimes I go with what I feel like is a non-answer period. And sometimes I get, I get frustrated because I don't feel like I'm connecting with God in my prayers. But when I pray, I always feel like I have God's complete attention. And I believe that God does that of, of, of design. That he is capable of listening to everybody praying to him at the same time. As if he were listening just to you. I, I think that is a beautiful, awesome picture. You see, when I pray, when you pray, our first focus ought to be on the greatness and the nature of God rather than on my needs or my requests. Because if I can recreate, if I can come up with a new image, if I can get away from that white-robed, long-haired, bearded, aging, senile God on the throne in my images that we think of in cartoons, then maybe, maybe my prayer life will take on a new meaning. Nothing is more immense than the universe, and yet... God permeates it all. 
Isaiah paints this beautiful picture for us in Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? He sits enthroned above the earth. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Oh, folks, the farthest visible galaxy is 13 billion light years away from our humble planet. And since light travels at 186,000 miles per second, and since there are 31,536,000 seconds in a year, light will travel 5,865,696,000,000 miles in a year. Times 13 billion light years and, well, you do the math. I have no idea what that number is. I can't begin to comprehend that kind of distance. And yet, and yet God is there. And those galaxies that we cannot yet see, God is there as well. In our Milky Way, there are an estimated 150 billion stars, and ours is only one of countless, countless galaxies in the visible universe. I can't pronounce the number of estimated stars in the universe, and yet God knows every star, planet, and moon by name. How much water can you hold in the palm of your hand if you cup it? Tablespoon? The earth has 139 million square miles of water, three miles deep. All of it, Isaiah says, picturesquely, fits into the hollow of God's hand. It's a picture of massive control. The weight of the earth is estimated at 66 sextillion tons, and it gets heavier by about 25 tons per day from space dust. And you wondered where all that dust under your bed came from. Now you know. <laughs> but God can tell you to the ounce what this planet weighs at any given moment. Now, here's the best part. The Lord who names every star, who holds the water in the hollow of his hand, who weighs the earth in his balance, knows you, loves you, and invites you to talk to him. Is that not awesome? Now, try praying with that image in mind, as opposed to the white-robed one that we usually think of. To think that the God of the universe, who knows every planet, star, and moon by name, invites me to talk to him. And what's more, he promises to listen and answer in his time and by his wisdom. Not in my time and not in my wisdom. Now let me give you a much simpler image, but no less profound in my estimation. Uh, I've passed several ponds and lakes here lately in this really deep, cold stretch, and most of the smaller bodies of water have a, have a covering of ice over it. Now, we, we don't really think much about that. But do, you, but do you realize that the ice on the lakes is a matter of life and death? Nearly every compound becomes denser as it gets colder. Things contract. It becomes denser, except for water. 
Water is at its densest at 39 degrees. But at 32 degrees, something changes. Water doesn't follow the normal pattern. At 32 degrees, it begins to form ice. It begins to expand. And the the ice becomes lighter and rises to the top of the surface of the water. You see, if if water followed the normal pattern of the colder it is, the denser it gets, the more it contracts. Then ice would get heavier, it would fall to the bottom of the lakes and keep mounting up. And by March, all the lakes and the ponds, for the most part, would be solid ice, killing everything within it. But because water expands as it reaches 32 degrees and becomes lighter, that ice forms on the surface of the water, giving an insulation from the cold air above to the life that is below so that when the ice thaws in the spring, there is life in the water because ice floats. You see, if God can can sustain marine life through the harshest of winters with something as simple as ice, don't you think he is strong enough, powerful enough, and caring enough to handle your prayers in his time according to his wisdom? Elton Trueblood writes this. He said, the historic Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. It is far more radical than that. It means that God is like Jesus. You want a picture of the God to whom you pray, then you look at Jesus Christ and you will see his heart. Understand who you're praying to and it'll change your prayers. Again, I ask the question, why pray? Because first of all, we're commanded to. Several times in Scripture, we find that imperative. I, I, I picked the hardest one for me. Maybe it's not for you, but it is for me. Matthew 5, 44, it says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Boy, that is hard. Simply put, I, I don't need any more reasoning or justification to pray. I've been commanded to do so. Not to pray makes me as guilty before God as if I had broken one of the thou shalt nots of the commandments. Granted, praying because I must is not the highest motivation. I get that, but it is a motivation. And since this reasoning is on the bottom end, let's move to the top end. Why pray? Because Jesus made it a priority. Mark 1.35 reads like this. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. This is only the first of many such images of Jesus praying. He gave thanks for food. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed for the multitudes. He prayed before choosing his disciples. He prayed with his disciples. He prayed alone. He prayed in groups. He prayed at the tomb of Lazarus before Lazarus was restored to life. He prayed for those whose souls were entombed in spiritual death that they might find life in him. He prayed for unity in the upper room, courage in the garden of Gethsemane, and forgiveness from the cross. He prayed in the early morning hours. He prayed at various times of the day. And occasionally, he prayed all night long. Now, we know there were three occasions when Jesus got some spiritual divine help. At his baptism, God said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. At his transfiguration, the same thing happened. And there in the garden, as he prayed before the cross, an angel came to minister to him. But apart from those three divinely appointed times, Jesus relied on prayer for his strength. Philip Yancey wrote, Jesus counted on prayer as a source of strength that equipped him to carry out a partnership with God the Father on earth. Herbert Lockyer wrote, Jesus loved to pray. Prayer was a part of his life and was as involuntary as his breathing. 
Prayer was his regular habit and his resort in every emergency. And remember this, Jesus prayed for you. He prayed for all of us who would believe in him through the message of the apostles by faith. Once again, I don't need a better motivation. People, if God in the flesh, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, found it necessary and vital to pray, who am I to say that I shouldn't or I don't need it or I can't? Why pray? Because prayer helps others. I don't know about you, but I am greatly encouraged when somebody says, I've been praying for you. Boy, that just lifts my spirits to know somebody cares enough to lift my name up before God. And when we do that for others, it's an encouragement to them as well. Why pray? Because prayer changes me. From the beginning, God created us in his image. Genesis 1 so God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. From the very start, God intended that we should be different from all the rest of the creation around us. For all of the glory of his creation, he put us in a unique position to have a relationship with him. When we pray, we, we, have, an, well, we have an advantage that nothing else in creation does. We've been made in his image, so we are a reflection of him so we ought to want to talk to him. Nobody else in creation, nothing else in creation does. Cows don't worship God. Fish don't sing praises to God. Dogs don't pray to God before they chow down on their meal. And cats, they already think they're God. <laughs> now, God cares deeply about his creation. But we, we are the crown of his creation for which he sent his son to be our savior. So when we fail to pray, we're worse than the rest of creation because I'm pretty convinced if they had the opportunity to pray, they would. How does that change me? Well, prayer reminds me that I'm helpless. Uh, we, we as a, a people pride ourselves on being self-reliant. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We buy self-help books. We, we pay our own way through life. When a little toddler says, I do it myself, we back away because we realize that a child needs to be able to do it on his or her own to grow up. But the truth is, I am not self-reliant. Theologian Ole Hallisby settled on the single word helplessness as the best attitude in our prayerful approach to God. Fifty-two men put their lives and fortunes on the line when they signed the document that launched us into the Revolutionary War, the Declaration of Independence. Prayer for the Christian is our declaration of dependence. It is acknowledging before God that I am helpless without him. And that declaration changes me. Prayer also changes me because it challenges me to be humble. James quotes from Proverbs 3 when he wrote this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When I don't pray, folks, I can justify just about anything. After all, I can get pretty proud about the fact that I'm not nearly as bad as the guy across town or the guy down the street. But, the, but somehow, when I pray to God, it just doesn't sound right to say, Lord, if you think I've been bad this week, you ought to see what old so-and-so did. Because, you see, God really knows who I am. And God knows who old so-and-so is. And he knows that I'm no better than old so-and-so. 
And you see, when I don't pray, I get to thinking I'm pretty big stuff. Daniel Hawk put it this way. He said, the basic human problem is that everyone believes that there is a God, and I'm it. We all may feel that way, but really, really, what, what do I have to crow about? I didn't control where or when or to whom I was born. I cannot affect the earth's rotation, our distance from the sun, nor lessen the gravitational pull. I cannot will it to rain nor moderate the heat and cold in Indiana. I can't even outsmart the deer that eat our plants in the spring in our backyard. When I pray, it's hard to be proud. When I don't pray, it's easy to be proud. I'm reminded to humble myself before God who can control all those many things and so much more. Humility doesn't mean that we grovel before God. Rather, in the presence of God, we see ourselves for who and what we really are. I'm very small in light of God's greatness. You see, when I pray, pray it changes me. And maybe that's the most incredible reason to do it. Because I need all the change I can get. Before Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel, art scholars tell us that in most creation paintings, God is standing on the ground, reaching down to help Adam to his feet. But when Michelangelo painted the creation of Adam, God is rushing toward Adam on a cloud propelled by angels suggesting power and swiftness. It's as if even in the splendor of all creation, God's entire being is wrapped up in his impatient desire to close the gap between him and his creation in humanity. And his hand, if you notice, God's hand comes within just a fraction of Adam's outstretched hand. Apparently, one of Michelangelo's messages that he wanted to convey was God's irresistible determination to reach out and be with the one he created. God gets as close as he can, and yet he allows a little space so that Adam can make the choice. God waits for Adam to make the move, and all Adam has to do is just lift a finger. Or could I put it this way? All Adam has to do is offer a prayer. The fresco took Michelangelo, Michelangelo four years of intense labor and yet five centuries. For five centuries, this painting has spoken of God's great desire to be with us. He's ever so close. He's just awaiting us to choose to reach out. He's only just a touch away. He's only just a prayer away. And I think in this year, the greatest challenge for me, I hope for you too, is that I need to pray more. I need to spend more time talking to my Heavenly Father. And I'm going to make a commitment to do that with you. Hope you will make that same commitment. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.